So Daniel chapter 1, I'll read the entire chapter. Please give your attention as God's Word is read. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. <clears throat> May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Well, uh, this sermon is going to be maybe probably a tad longer than normal just because of the size of the text, but also I'm going to go through a little bit of introductory material here to sort of set the stage for 
not only this message, but the coming messages through the book of Daniel. So as we said this morning, starting this morning, going on for probably the next two or three months, we will be looking at the book of Daniel. Now you may ask, why Daniel? Why did you choose this book? Well, first, because it's not the Gospel of John. So it's something different to break up the monotony of the Gospel of John. Secondly, it's Old Testament. So we shake things up a little bit, a little bit of New Testament, a little bit of Old Testament, because it is all God's word. It all needs to be understood. and It is all profitable for us. Plus, it also, in a way, complements, not like complimenting somebody for, you know, like saying something good, but it complements, it goes together with what we've been studying Sunday evenings in the book of Revelation. Because like Revelation, Daniel is an apocalyptic book. It speaks in visions, particularly the second half of the book. Lots of visions, lots of dreams that tell of a future beyond the time of Daniel. And it is a timely book, as we will see in a moment. But again, we've called the series Faith Enduring Through Adversity. That is timely in any period of time because as the faithful people of God, we are always going to be going through some form of adversity. Now just a little bit of uh, housekeeping stuff here, the who, the when, and the what of Daniel. There's a lot of debate within scholarly circles regarding the authorship of Daniel. Whether Daniel wrote it or whether it was written by someone else synonymously, you know, a pseudonym, or someone who was uh, just, you know, just not Daniel. Now, who wrote Daniel will also determine when Daniel was written. Because if you believe one thing, you will believe Daniel was written at a particular period of time. If you believe another, you will believe that it was written at another period of time. Now, with all the views, there are essentially two views concerning the authorship of Daniel. The first comes from the critical or the liberal scholars who believe Daniel was either written pseudonymously, say that ten times fast, that Daniel was a pseudonym, a false name of an author, or that some other Jew named Daniel wrote the book during the early 2nd century B.C., sometime around 170 B.C. Now the reason they give for this is because the accuracy of some of Daniel's prophecies uh, suggests to them that Daniel is not writing about the future. He is writing history. He is writing as someone who has seen that, and he's writing it as prophecy. So it's prophecy or history pretending to be prophecy. Now, obviously, as you can probably tell, this is a view that has a low view of Scripture, a low view of the authority and, and inspiration of Scripture. So it is one we would reject. The other view, the one we would hold, is the traditional or conservative view that Daniel was written by a man named Daniel who lived during the late 7th and into the 6th century B.C., a man who was deported to Babylon in the year 605 B.C., along with many others, and that this book was written at the end or near the end of his life somewhere around 530 B.C. And as I said, this is the view that I hold to and that many who are traditional conservative, who have a high view of Scripture, will hold to this view as well. Now the theme of Daniel. What is the purpose in the theme of Daniel? Simply put, the book of Daniel, the theme of the book of Daniel is that God is in charge of the affairs of nations and kingdoms. 
God is in charge of the affairs of nations and kingdoms. Probably a theme verse for the entire book of Daniel can be found in Daniel 4, verse 17. It says, To the end that the living may know that the Most High, that is God, rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is in charge of the affairs of kingdoms and nations and men. And with that overarching theme, we also see the theme of then how God's people ought to live in a hostile world, knowing that God is in control of all things. Because if God is sovereign, which we believe He is, and if He is in control over the affairs of nations and kingdoms, which we believe He is, then this can be a source of great comfort over, uh, for God's people who are living in these hostile and uncertain times. To remain faithful knowing that God will vindicate His people. In other words, it's a way to, to be comforted knowing that even though things look like they're going to you know, hell in a handbasket, forgive my French, but if, even if we know that we can see that things are going to hell in a handbasket, we know God is in control and that we can be, take comfort from that, from that and how then we ought to live knowing that God is in control. Now I want to say just a few more words then on the structure of Daniel. Because if you look at Daniel, you think, well, it seems pretty easy to structure, right? You've got chapters 1 through 6, which kind of give you narrative and history, the stories of Daniel that you grew up with in Sunday school and heard, you know, the story of Daniel in the lion's den or the story of the three guys in the fiery furnace or the writing on the wall, these wonderful stories that we hear of Daniel. And then you've got the weird stuff at the end of Daniel, the stuff that all these dreams and visions of beasts and statues and things going on, and, and you're like, what's going on there? So that's one way to break Daniel down. You look at the narrative section and you look at the visionary section. But I think if you look at Daniel, and if you know a little bit about Daniel, you'll see that there's a deeper structure to it, a more unified structure. It's not just two halves, but really what you have here is a unified uh, theme and a unified structure and format going forward. Now, you may not know it because it's all in English for us, but Daniel is actually written in two languages. Two languages. Hebrew, which we see in chapters 1 and then chapters 8 through 12. And then in the middle portion, chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Now, there's not a lot of difference between Aramaic and Hebrew. They're both Semitic languages, but Aramaic was the language of Babylon. It was the language of those kingdoms of the East. It was sort of like what they call the lingua franca of the day or the universal language. It's like English is today. You can go to almost any place in the world and someone will speak English, right? That's why English people don't have to learn to speak other languages. We just assume people will speak English to us in other countries. So Aramaic was sort of like the language of the day back then. Now, so chapter 1 then, which is written in Hebrew, sort of sets the stage for the entire book. Then chapters 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, give us a message for the world. Again, written in Aramaic so that anybody, not just Jews, could read and understand what was being said in Daniel's chapter seven, 2 through 7. So Daniel's chapters 2 through 7 give us a message to the world. And then 8 through 12, written in Hebrew again, 
is a message for God's people. So a message for the world and a message for God's people. Okay, take a deep breath. That's the intro section, okay? So with that sort of longish intro out of the way, let's dig into our passage this morning because our passage here begins with an exile. The kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom after the Israel had split into the northern kingdom of Israel, which was conquered in 725 BC by the Assyrian Empire and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah has been given into the hands of of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the point of our message this morning in Daniel 1 is that God vindicates the faithfulness of His people. God vindicates the faithfulness of His people. Now, as I said, um, the book of Daniel opens up with a little bit of historical context as we look at our first point this morning, exile in Babylon in verses 1 and 2. We see that it is in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So that marker there, the third year of King Jehoiakim, That's how we know that this is dated to 605 B.C. Now we see that the Babylonians here are making inroads into Palestine. They are sieging, they are laying siege to Judah and Jerusalem. Now they did so on three separate occasions here in 605 B.C. They did it again later in 597 B.C. And then finally in 587 B.C. when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and And it was finally laid to to waste. But each time that Babylon came and laid siege on Judah, they would deport people from Judah back to Babylon. And here we see this is the first of those invasions. Now we read that, we may think, okay, well, King Nebuchadnezzar prevailed because he was a mighty military leader. He was a great general. He was a great tactician. And that he had a mighty army behind him. But then in verse 2, we tell us that it was the Lord that gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. This was an act of divine punishment by God on his people for their repeated unrepentant sin. Babylon was simply the instrument or the tool that God used to bring judgment on his people. So, Nebuchadnezzar may have been a great military leader. He may have been a great military tactician, but he wouldn't have gotten anywhere if God had not given Judah into his hand. This, is, this goes all the way back to a promise that was made in the days of Moses when God tells the people through Moses in Deuteronomy 28, verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. God tells Moses, or the people through Moses, look, if you are disobedient, if you are disobedient and you do not repent of your sins, guess what? I am going to hand you over 
to a foreign king. You will be taken away into a foreign land and you will serve foreign gods of wood and stone. As I said earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, none of it would exist or have any success unless first God had decided and willed to have them, uh, to give them into his hand. So even here in these opening verses of Daniel, we see the main theme that frames the rest of this book. God is in control. He is sovereign even over the affairs of kings and nations as he gives Judah and Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of Judah's apostasy of their spiritual idolatry, the Babylonians then capture the vessels of the house of God and then take them and put them into their own temple, of the temple of their own God. This is sort of like an ancient power move, right? Where you go and you take their, their religious relics and you say, I'm taking your religious relics and guess what? I'm going to put them in the house of my God and they're going to serve my God's purposes. My God is greater than your God because I was able to take your religious relics and put them into the house of my God. Now as we see in verses 3 and 4, not only did Nebuchadnezzar bring back the religious artifacts, but he also brought back the cream of Jerusalem's youth. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So you see here, it's one thing to sort of conquer your enemies and enslave them and keep them in subjugation. It's quite another thing to take them, bring them back to your country, and turn them into Babylonians. And that's what's going on here. Because if you can re-educate the youth in the ways of your society, they will be less likely to rebel against you. So to this end, Nebuchadnezzar chooses the best of the best, right? Without blemish, of good appearance, people who are skillful in wisdom. He chooses them and takes them back to Babylon to re-educate them, to brainwash them, if you will. The king wanted all of these youths from Jerusalem to be instructed in all the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And here now is a, des- is, a, is a deliberate attempt to isolate, to indoctrinate, and to compromise the Lord's people. Because the Lord's people, they are separated from their families. They are separated from their land. They are separated from their temple and from their religion. And now they're here in a foreign land and being sort of indoctrinated in the ways of Babylon. So they become good citizens of Babylon. Not only that, but they are now forced to eat the king's food and to drink the king's name, a wine, and to bear the names of the king's gods. Look at verses five and seven, five through seven, I should say. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. Quite an indoctrination program. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these 
were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I always find it interesting because, at least for me, I don't know about you all, I mean, Daniel we know because Daniel's Daniel, but how many people actually remember the three Hebrew names of the other guys? I've always known them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I've never remembered their actual names, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. But here we're finally introduced to the heroes, or at least the human heroes of our story. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now all of these names that they have, they are names that are based on the name of God or the name of Jehovah. Because Daniel means my judge is God. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Jehovah has helped. Now instead, the officials of Babylon say, you're not going to be using those names anymore. We're going to give you names. And we're going to give you names that are based on our gods. So they change their names to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All of these names are based on Babylonian gods, Bel, Marduk, and Nebo. Now, what is all this about? Well, the basically, here what you see is they are trying to brainwash the youth of Jerusalem. They are taking these young men and they are going to remove them from their godly influences and instruct them in the ways of their culture to indoctrinate, to isolate, and to compromise them. And we see this all throughout the world today, even today in the 21st century. The anti-Christian world seeks to do the same thing to Christians to isolate us, to indoctrinate us in the ways of their world, the ways of their thinking, and to compromise us, to get us to do things against our faith. And the question then becomes, when that happens, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, as we look at verse 8, we can see what Daniel did. In Daniel verse 8, chapter 1 verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. There are a lot of things in the world that we cannot change, right? There are a lot of things in the world that we cannot change, but there are certain things that we do have some control over. Daniel and his three friends had no control over the, their deportation to Babylon. Daniel and his three friends had no control over the fact that their religious relics were taken from Jerusalem and put into the house of the gods of Babylon. Daniel and his three friends had no control over the fact that the Babylonians were going to call them by new names. But Daniel resolved. He settled it in his heart. He says, I don't have to eat the king's food. That is a little something that I have control over. I don't have to put that food in my mouth. I don't have to defile myself with the delicacies of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now again, there's a lot of speculation as to why Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food. Some argue that it was because the food wasn't kosher, that it wasn't prepared in a kosher manner. Some argue that it was food that was used in Babylonian pagan rituals. 
I say, why does it have to be either of those things? Because the text isn't specific. It just says, Daniel didn't want to eat their food. I don't want to defile myself with your food, O king. Because if Daniel and his three friends ate the king's food, they would essentially be saying that King Nebuchadnezzar is their provider. That King Nebuchadnezzar is the one to whom they have to depend upon instead of God. And they didn't want to place their faith and trust in King Nebuchadnezzar. They wanted to keep their faith and trust in King Jehovah. And again, think of our own lives in the world, how the world is increasingly hostile to Christians. How does the world here persuade us to compromise our faith? How does the world seek to, as Paul says, force us into its mold to conform us to its way of thinking? Think of all the things that the world wants us to tolerate or accept or turn a blind eye to, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's transgenderism, whether it's sexual promiscuity, whether it's abortion. The world wants us to accept these things. The world wants us to sort of tolerate these things and to turn a blind eye to these things. And if as a Christian you dare speak out against any of these things, then we run the risk of getting canceled. We run the risk of being deplatformed off of social media. We run the risk of being fired from our jobs. Or for worse, in some countries, some ministers and Christians are facing legal action for speaking out against what the Bible speaks out against. There are a lot of things in this world that are out of our control, that we have no control over. But like Daniel, we can and should resolve not to defile ourselves. So Daniel here asks the chief eunuch to allow him not to defile himself with the king's food. And notice in verse 9 how God then rewards Daniel's faithful resolve by giving Daniel favor and compassion in the eyes of his captors. Look at verses 9 and 10. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So why would you endanger my head with the king? God here is clearly and providentially at work in Daniel's life. This always reminds me of stories like Joseph, where Joseph found favor in the house of Potiphar, where Joseph found favor with Pharaoh, or with Ruth, how she found favor in Boaz's sight, or Esther, how she found favor with uh, King Ahasuerus. And all of God's people, God is providentially at work in our lives even when we don't see it. And here, while the chief eunuch is favorable to Daniel's request, he still fears the king's reaction. He's like, Daniel, look, I'd love to help you out, buddy. I really would. But you know what? If I don't give you the king's food, the king's going to take me and feed me to the lions. I'm going to be the king's food before you know it. So Daniel and his friends have to go. He doesn't want Daniel and his friends to go before the king and appear weak and, 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 and malnourished. Because if they did, it would be on his head. So then Daniel makes a deal with the steward here in verses 11 and 13, through 13, the steward who was watching over them. 
Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel and his three friends, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he makes a deal, right? And the deal is to let Daniel and his friends eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days. And he says, look, after 10 days, if we look worse than everybody else, then put us back on the king's food. We'll do whatever you want, and you can do with us whatever you want. So in a way, this gives the steward and the eunuch sort of an out. It's like, okay, we'll try it your way for a few days. If it doesn't work, then we'll take care of you. Now first here, note a couple of things. First note Daniel's interaction with the steward and with the eunuch. Daniel is polite. and He's respectful. Right? He's, he goes and he says, look, hey, do you mind? I would rather not eat the king's food. If you would, please, let us, you know, if we have found favor in your sight, let us be given vegetables to eat. Meaning that we, when we take a faith stand against the world or against the world trying to force us into its mold, we don't need to be rude or obnoxious about it. In fact, Christians should be humble. Christians should be well spoken of. We should not be obnoxious. We should not be uh, antagonistic when we take our stands. That is the way the world does things. We are called as Christians to respect all people in authority over us. Not some, not most, all people. Even those with whom we disagree. And we may disagree with them vehemently, yet we are to give them respect. But second, notice Daniel's faithful expectation that God would act. He took a stand on faith. He made a resolution of faith, and he believed that God would accept that, that God would vindicate that, that God would act on his behalf. So, what happens after the 10 days? Look at verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. All right, did you catch that? Lo and behold, Daniel's friends were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. They were fatter in flesh after 10 days of eating vegetables. Now you take two people and you feed them steak and potatoes for 10 days and a salad without you know, ranch dressing without Dorothy Lynch dressing for 10 days, who do you think is going to be fatter after the 10 days? I think it would be the person eating prime rib and potatoes, not the person eating lettuce. This is a total God thing here. Because no one gets fatter after 10 days of eating leaves. I'm sorry, it just doesn't happen in the real world. The moral of the story is not now to go vegan or go vegetarian, but to trust God to provide 
even when all of the odds are stacked against you. In fact, the guards are so impressed by what they did that they put everyone on the Daniel diet. It's like, okay, take away the king's food. Give everyone vegetables. How would you like that? The next fellowship meal we're going to have is going to be all vegetables. Some people are shaking their heads. Some people are like, no way, Jose. I'm in the no way, Jose crowd. However, we still need to keep in mind that God is not obligated to act on our behalf in situations like this. The principle here still stands. If we are faithful to God, He will be faithful to us. And now as we see in our final point in verses 17 through 21, Daniel's faithful resolution was rewarded by God's vindication. Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions in dreams. Notice again here, God gave. Just like God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs, here God gave them wisdom and understanding in all of the learning of Babylon. And Daniel was given uh, understanding in all visions and dreams. These four youths, Daniel, Hananiah, Asheriah, Azariah, and, and Mishael, they were the star pupils in Babylon University. So after three years, they, they are the top of the top. They are the valedictorians. They are the summa cum laude of Babylon U. And now came the time to be examined before the king in verses 18 through 20. At the end of the time, that is the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So they passed with flying colors, right? They went before for their oral examination and they answered every question. And more than that, they far surpassed all of the other magicians and wise men that were already in the kingdom. These four men were better than everyone in the kingdom. And again, this is a God thing. God gave them this. Not that Daniel and his friends were smart. Weren't smart, I should say. They were. They were among the best of Jerusalem. But their meteoric rise to the height of Babylonian society has the hand of God written all over it. And again, just like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel and his friends are in a unique position to not only benefit Babylonian society, but also to serve the purposes of God. And here we see the last verse of the chapter, verse 21. Here it gives us sort of the, the breadth of Daniel's service. In verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel would not only serve several Babylonian kings, but he would also serve into the Persian period. A, 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 a period of service of over 70 years. 
Daniel was there in the highest parts of the courts of the kings of Babylon and the kings of Persia. Now again, here the moral of the story is not be faithful to God so that you can rise in power in society. Rather, the moral of the story here is that God vindicates His faithful servants and that sometimes a hard providence. And it was a hard providence, right? They were exiled. They were ripped out of their homes and put into a foreign land. They were teenagers, probably. And they were put into a foreign land away from their home, away from their faith, away from their family. That's a hard providence. A very hard providence on God's hand. But even that, that God can use that to put you in a position where God wants you for His good, or for your good and for His glory. So what does this now mean for all of us here in the 21st century? Because the temptation is to take this opening narrative and all the stories that we see in Daniels 1-6 through and sort of moralize them, sort of you know, like the song we have in the back of the hymnal, Dare to be a Daniel. So we just want to say, well, let's just be like Daniel. We'll all be little Daniels and we'll rise and we'll be accepted in society. Now, we could certainly learn from Daniel's example and I don't want to minimize that. Because, but our series here is called Faith Enduring Through Adversity. And how does that apply to us here? Well, I hope you can begin to at least see some parallels between Daniel's time and our time. Because Christians are referred to in the New Testament by Peter in his letter, we are referred to as exiles. We are referred to as sojourners. And what does that suggest? An exile is someone who's not at home. A sojourner is someone who's journeying through an area that is not his home. We are pilgrims. We are strangers in a strange land. We are citizens of another kingdom. As such, we need to be faithful. We need to make faithful resolutions not to be conformed to this world but to be transformed by the Spirit of, of, of the Word. By the Spirit and the Word, I should say. And sometimes, not being conformed to this world can be painful. It may mean taking a stand that will be not beneficial to us. And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to intentionally put yourself in a position that you can be harmed or compromised in. But that is the call here, to be faithful as an exile, to be faithful as a sojourner, we are not in the kingdom of God. We are in the kingdoms of this world. But here is the good news. And the good news is that God is in control even in Babylon. Remember that God gave Judah into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. And God is in control. and He will reward and He will vindicate the faithfulness of His saints. Now, as we're going to see here in the coming chapters, the world is going to act and it's going to think like it's won because they are in ascendancy. They're going to think, we have won. We have finally conquered the, the backwards thinking of religion and Christianity in this world. And they're going to think they just continue to grow in power. And there's nothing that can stop us. Nothing can stop our progress. Every time the godless world philosophies seem to be in ascendancy. 
Their arrogance also rises to nothing can stop them. We have finally banished the puritanical ways of backwards thinking. We see it in the world all around us today, the growing dependence and reliance on government to solve all of our social ills. But Christ Jesus, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, has overcome the world. The world may think it is one, but guess what? Jesus says, I have overcome the world. His kingdom, which is not of this world and has no end, will crush the kingdoms of this world. We'll see this, Lord willing, next week as the stone that is cut without hands will crush and destroy all of the kingdoms of the world. So we are to remain as faithful citizens, not of this world, but of Christ's kingdom, and to remain undefiled by the world. So don't let the world isolate you. Don't let the world indoctrinate you. Don't let the world compromise your faith. But remain steadfast and sure in these troubled times. Now you may question, how do I become a citizen of Christ's kingdom? How do I get into the kingdom? That's a great question. And there's, you know, it's as easy as ABC as I like to say. First, you need to acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and can do nothing to save yourself. You are born in sin and you live in sin and you are walking as a dead sinner in this world. You need to acknowledge that. The Holy Spirit brings that acknowledgement on you. You acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner. Then you believe in Jesus Christ that He died to pay the penalty for your sin and was raised so that you could be righteous in God's sight. And finally, with your mouth, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and live a life of thankful obedience to Him. Because the kingdoms of this world are doomed to pass away. But the kingdom of God, which is growing right in the midst of the, kingdom, of the kingdoms of this world, will last forever. Until then, as a citizen of God's kingdom, remain faithful in a hostile world, and God will vindicate you. Let us pray.